0: Step by, step. Step by.
1: Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Do we have a joke? We have a joke, right? Yeah. Can we have our joke teller come up and tell us a funny joke, please?
2: <laughs> jo- Joey's out for right now, so I'm going to be the honorary joke teller. I'm James. I'm a recovered alcoholic. A drunk walks into a bar and says, all lawyers are a-holes. A guy at the end of the bar says, I resent that. The drunk says, why, are you a lawyer? He goes, no, I'm an a-hole. Let's
1: give him a round of applause. Come on. Andrew? Andrew? Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make that make noise and might will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away, and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation. To uh, start off the fog light prayer, which is up there, so uh, follow along with me. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light, so those whom are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Jack to come up and read Appendix 2, entitled Spiritual Experience. We Read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is.
3: My name is Jack. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular appeals. Happily for, happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. Ur- in the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among a rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, thought frequent, though frequent, are by no means the rule, Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety. Because they develop develop slowly over a period of time, quite often friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few expectations, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think that awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of a spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most sympathetically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts it can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one, we find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance that principle is contempt prior to investigation.
1: Thank you very much, Jack. Uh, Please refrain from disrupting others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane or meeting mode or just turn it off. Now uh it's my pleasure to introduce one of those guys like every every single time you hear these speakers get up they talk about chasing people and this is one of those guys that you want to chase. Um one of my my very first experience I walked into my home group which I didn't know was going to be my home group 5 years ago and I was hit by this wall of energy and when I sat down I started hearing this guy speak and people around me were laughing and I was like this is not what I expected out of AA like I like I thought I was going to be fighting off a drink for the rest of my life, twenty-four hours at a time. But like hearing his words, and every year that I hear his words, it's amazing how much more has been revealed to me. So just help me give a warm welcome to Pat.
4: I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Pat. And thanks to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the program of AA, uh, I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and for that I'll be forever grateful. Uh, AA has surely given me a new way of life, and I absolutely enjoy my life today. Uh, Not every moment of it, but uh, as a whole, uh, I enjoy my life. Uh, You know, it's funny, we just did kind of a nine-step talk last night, and... uh, and I was, uh, I'm always nervous when I do this stuff. I, you know, it's funny, I was sitting there just now, and uh, and from the time I get up in the morning, I think about that I have to speak tonight. You know what I mean? And, and then I'm so busy during the day, I kind of forget about it. And then a couple hours before I have to speak, then I think about it again, and I get this knot in my stomach. And uh, I thought that that fear would go away after a period of time, and it just never has. And, uh, but God, God has me walk through it. And I was sitting there with with these guys and and uh like just about two minutes before i come up here this calm comes over me and uh and i know that's god you know and uh and just says okay do your thing you know do whatever you do do whatever you're gonna do and and, uh so i had that yesterday i'm uh, in the middle of the day thinking uh you know what am i gonna say tonight Uh, i'm speaking at these this group where there's some what i call heavy hitters the guys that i stalk you know the guys that i chase around in uh and want what they have. That's what I did. And all my, my whole recovery, and I still do it. I chase speakers that have what I want, and, and guys that know the book, and guys that uh, do the step series, and live the deal, you know, do the deal, and, uh, and have what I need and want. Not just what I want, but what I need. And, uh, and so I'm thinking about By the way, there's three talks there's the talk that I'm going to have, the talk that I actually have, and then the talk that I should have had. You know what I mean? That's the kind of way this works. So I was thinking about the talk I'm going to have uh, when I'm doing this meeting. And I And for some reason, it brought me back to the first three months that I was in the program where I would sit where you are and look at these shades and read those steps and kind of decide which ones I was going to do and which ones I wasn't, you know? And, like, which ones... I really wanted to stay away from, like confession. You know, that's what I saw there was confession. You know, being raised Catholic, and this restitution thing down at the bottom there. I mean, the, you know, okay, I'm piling, I'm gone, okay, turn my will. Oh, Jesus, inventory. You yeah. know, oh, confession. Wait a minute, restitution. Yeah. And 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 I've shared with you. I never, I don't tell my story when I do these step series, but in my story, I share that I spent my first 90 days in AA. Uh, unencumbered by the steps of sponsorship and sponsorship in the big book, and uh, and I fell I fell in with the don't drink and go to Denny's crowd. And that that was our mantra: don't drink and go to Denny's, don't drink and go to Denny's, and uh, and and that's why I always say that you're gonna you're gonna become who you hang out with in AA. You know that's your recovery will flow like with people you hang out with, and you hang out with the don't drink and go to Denny's or. Florinata, uh, you're going to be that person. You're going to be a "Don't drink, go to tennis person. If you hang out with the big book dumpers, you're going to go to big book meetings with the big book dumpers and learn the big book. And you hang out with guys that do the step series and the speaker meetings, then you'll 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 be that. And, and, and that's true, by the way, not just with AA, but with anything. I, that was a, advice that I gave my children when they were growing up. You will become who you hang out with. You know, and I hung out with the, the drinkers and the, and the and the addicts and. I, that's where I found acceptance, and I became an alcoholic and an addict. You know, it was just kind of the thing, you know. And my, my sons, you know, took that, that, that lesson to heart and uh, and was very careful about who they hung out with and, and, and who they affiliated themselves and associated with. But anyways, 90 days NAA... I'm falling apart. I'm suicidal. 90 days. I'm picking up a red chip at the Fifth Chapter Club when it was in Lighthouse Point, and I'm falling apart in AA. I can't stand the way I feel for one more effing second. Has everybody been there in AA? Everybody, everybody been in that place where, you know, F this meeting. F these people. You know, I remember sitting in my home group, which I called my home group. If that guy tells the dog and ketchup story one more freaking time, I'm going to kill him. You know, I'm just, I'm just sick of hearing the same shit over and over and over again. And that seemed to be what they did was just repeat the same stuff over and over again. And, you know, I, I, I can't stand the way I feel for one more second, and I can't drink. I don't have a solution to that anymore. And, and what's the difference between that and me being in the hotel room just before I come into AA, and I can't stand the way I feel for one more second, and I can't stop drinking? There was no difference to me. Either way, I can't stand who and what I am right now. You know, and I told the whole group off in that meeting. What a bunch of losers they were! You know, you, this is some kind of cult. You know, this a hole says he has a life beyond his wildest dreams, and he don't even have a car or a girlfriend. I, I mean, I should, somebody should tell him that he's in AA. You know, that in the real world he's nothing. You know, and I, I mean that was what I—that's I, where I was at at ninety days, and, and I left that meeting, and, and nobody uh, liked me at that point. You know, and I'm standing out at the railing. Uh, at the Fifth Chapter Club, and Brian H. approaches me and says, do you know there's a program here? And I say, yeah, I've been coming to it for three months. He says, no, you've been visiting the fellowship. There's a program here. It's called the Big Book. And, uh, and I didn't know that. I didn't know that this was the program and you were the fellowship. I had no idea that there was a distinction there between the, AA the fellowship and AA the program, you know. And he said, would you like to hear it? And I said, sure. And, and that night he took me into his Mazda behind the Fifth Chapter Club and read the doctor's opinion to me. And I don't know where you were hiding that information, but there's some pertinent information right there, right? What every addict and alcoholic wants to know, really, answer the question. Why can't I stay stopped, given good reason? You know? Why, when I'm told I'm going to lose custody of my son, if I drink again, I drink anyway? Why, when the judge tells me if I test dirty, I'm going to jail, and I, and I test dirty anyway? You know, why is it that when my boss says you show up drunk or late one more freaking time, you're out of here? I show up drunk or late another time. You know, I've been given sufficient reason. If you don't come home tonight, I'm leaving you. Okay, I got it. Drink, divorce. I'm clear, no drinking. Promise, honey. And I come home drunk anyway. You yeah. know, and, and that's. Why is that? Brian talked about this obsession of the mind, this idea that blocks out the truth, this idea that can only see what alcohol and drugs are going to do for me completely block out what they're going to do to me because I can't stand the way I feel because I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. Man, my life was described in that paragraph. You are restless, irritable, and discontent, full of anxiety, full of fear, this self-talk that tells you you're not good enough. You don't measure up. And then you get this ease and comfort that comes at once from a couple of drinks. The problem is, once you put a couple of drinks in your system, you have this physical craving that kicks in and you're off to the races. You can't stop at three. You lose the power of choice once you put a drink or a drug in your system. And and he explained to me what powerlessness was. But here's the thing. and I'm going to get to eight and nine. Trust me. So while I'm listening to this and identifying with this doctor's opinion, I look at Brian and I go... Am I going to have to call the IRS
5: mm-hmm.
4: and make them and, and tell them I'm sorry? Because that's what I thought the ninth step was: call people up and tell them you're sorry. You know? And he said, Pat, we're on step one. You know, that's step nine. You know? And I said, and I'm I go, oh, okay. I'm thinking. It's just, so he's going on again and again and, again, and he's and he's reading. And I'm saying, Brian, am I going to have to call the credit card companies and tell them I'm sorry? and he said pat we're on step one just let it go for now you know there's a reason why there's eight steps in front of nine you know and and i said and i say that to say this that once i knew and and by the way i did once i knew i was an alcoholic like i anybody else think they were crazy when they got here like you know right who does the stuff we do unless they're crazy or what I found out, sick. <laughs> you know, We suffer from an illness. And that was good news for me. To find out that I was sick and I suffered from an illness was great news for me because I thought I was freaking crazy. Okay? And I went like, cool. So I, I, after Brian, I'm on fire now. I know what's wrong with me. I'm an, I'm an alcoholic. And I call my ex-wife, who at that point had a restraining order on me and assault and battery charges. And was contest- contesting the original agreement on the divorce and taking custody of my son from me. Uh, I called her up and said, "Hey, I got good news. I know what's wrong with me. I'm an alcoholic." And I said, "Really?" She said, "Really." I said, "Yeah, yeah. I'm an alcoholic. I'm so sorry." You know? And she said, "You're not." A-. And she said, "You know what you are? You're an asshole who drinks a lot." And she hung up. Right. And I didn't know how accurate that was until I started in the steps. She like nailed it, nailed it, right? But I didn't know that, you know, I was pissed. You know, I think I kicked something, broke my toe. You know, I mean, I was just raging back then, you know. And and uh, and so so what I realized is that like we read, that some kind of personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism had to take place For me to get the eight and nine, you know, something had to change in my, something had to change in my demeanor to even give me enough credibility to show up in front of people and make amends. And and that's what the rest of the steps were about for me was finding out the truth about myself, seeing where all of this was 99% of this was my fault and see the, the things that I had to change in my life. My tools in my the tools in my toolbox consisted of dishonesty, inconsideration, selfishness and self-centeredness, and fear. Those were my tools. All my decisions and all my all everything that I got in life, every way that I satisfied those instinctual drives. I, I got people to like me by lying and being inconsiderate and selfish. I got people to I, I got jobs by lying about who I was and being dishonest about who I was Uh, you know any relationship I was in I created this fake self you know this first date self that would show up in the relationship and I would convince you that this is who I was. And somewhere down the road, the real me would surface. And, but that's all I knew. That's all I knew. That was the energy behind my life, yeah. is you know, those, those four core defects of character that build this and the fourth step. I mean, he goes further in the twelve of 12 with pride, anger, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, sloth. You know, and then add some fear in there, add some dishonesty in there, you know? add some inconsideration in there. You know add self will run riot in there you know that, that I don't give a, <laughs> I don't give a shit about anybody but me in <laughs> the short version of the third step but that's, that's really it you know? and, and that was the truth. It was every, what's in it for me, how much is mine, and what about me? you know that was just every that was my questions I asked everywhere I was at, and that had to change. I had to somehow change and show up differently before I was before anybody was even going to consider accepting the amends from me. Except maybe the financial ones. You know, which were the easiest ones, by the way. You know. And uh, so in four, you know, I, I always share that in four step, this awakening, uh, the darkness started to lift for me. I, I, I did my four step and, and I was in the light. I really was. I, my four step allowed me, as the book says, to look at life from a different angle. You know, that I was able to see things differently. I was able to see that I was not a victim. I was a volunteer. You know that I provoked people. That that most reaction, most people were reacting to my behavior. That I brought out the worst in. And by the way, I can still do that. I brought out the worst in people. You know, I have a a knack at bringing out the worst in people. I have this tool called sarcasm that I think is an asset. My wife does not. You know, and and it just brings out the worst in everybody. You know, I just I can do that. And and you know that in four and five. I was able to see the things that I really needed to change, and in six and seven, make an attempt to change and, and hope. And there's a reason why six and seven is plugged in between five and eight and nine, you know, because some kind of demonstration of change has to take place before I show up in front of these people to make amends. You know, there has to be something different about me. I love what Bill says when he sees Debbie. There, was, the, the boy was on fire, you know. The boy was on fire. You know, there was something in his. There was something about his eyes. There was something in his eyes. You know, it was something different. You can see an awakening. You can see somebody who's living in the light and has come out of the darkness. They're excited, man. They're, what does he say that uh, was actually the uh, theme for the last CA uh, uh, retreat that I was at? He was more than inwardly reorganized. His roots, roots grasp new soil. You know that he was different. You know, and as much as he didn't want to hear what he had to say, he couldn't deny what was going on. He couldn't deny what he saw in front of him. He saw a recovered alcoholic in front of him. You know? And and we stay that way as long as we're in the light, as long as we stay in the light, which is 10, 11, and 12. We'll talk about staying in the light. ebby didn't stay in the light. <laughs> you know? I mean, he did for, for periods. And by the way, Ebby gets a bad rap. You know, Ebbie had some sober time. And Bill always called Ebbie his sponsor. And he called him his sponsor by name. And, and it wasn't for Ebbie, none of us would be here, you know. And Ebby died with two years sober. So and there was a period where he had seven years when he was living in Texas. So he gets kind of a bad rap. I mean, people would kill for two years sober. sober. And, and, and the man did die sober. So, so I, I say that to, to say this is that I knew it was more than an apology once I got to this step now, you know what I mean? I knew there was more than calling the credit card companies and telling them, I'm sorry that I didn't pay you, I'm sorry that I owe you $50,000, you know? It was more than calling the IRS and telling them I've been lying on my taxes all these years, which by the way, I didn't have to do. They called me. And
5: <laughs>
4: funny how that works out. And, and, the, and, and the reality of it is by the time I get to 8 and 9, I'm not in charge anymore. I'm not running the show anymore. I've relinquished control. Hopefully, some kind of spiritual awakening has taken place in seeing the truth about myself and making an attempt to change who and what I am. Humility, right? I have a clear recognition exactly who and what I am now and what I can become with God in my life, what I can become with God's help you know, in six and seven. And so I I hope that I show up differently. And I want to talk real quick uh, about eight. And, and you know, the, the big book doesn't talk too much about it. What the big book says is that we did eight and four. You know, that we have a list of people we harm. We did it in our inventory. And there's some truth in that. And, and that if you – we talked about the, the – uh, the genius of the way Bill outlines the fourth step, if you do it the way he has it outlined in the big book, you have everything you need for the rest of the steps. You have what you're going to read, you have your fourth step, you have everything you're going to read in your fifth step, you have everything that needs to be changed in six and seven, and you have the list of people that you have harmed for your eight-step list and who you're going to make amends to in step nine. And they're usually in the first column. And, and if you have somebody's name in the first column and you have something you've done to them where you've harmed them in the, in the fourth column, uh, then you, you owe an amends to them, right? So what we do is we get clear on that, and we, we create another list, and that's not in the book. This is something uh, we do at our workshop. And, and we take uh, anybody that we have in our first column on our resentment sheet that we have done harm to, we put them on this eight-step list. Who did I hurt, right? And we do the same thing with our fear inventory, And then everybody on, I like to call it a relationship inventory. The book calls it a sex inventory. I like to get a little clearer on it and say, in pursuit of sex, who did you hurt? Because we could hurt a lot of people in in our pursuit of sex. Uh, Children get hurt. Uh, Husbands of women that we're with get hurt. Uh, the, The person that we're with gets hurt because we're with somebody else. So there's a lot of people that we didn't necessarily have sex with that get hurt. And so we, we make a list of everybody we hurt in pursuit of sex. And then we go into other harms, which the book just touches on briefly and, and really never never goes there. What it says is that we, we make a list of everybody we've harmed. We create another she- sheet called uh, harms other than sexual, harms other than relational. And that would include uh, unpaid debts, you know, shoplifting, student loans, credit card debt, the IRS, you know, uh, hit and runs, you know. B&Es, that kind of stuff, right? Stuff that the book doesn't really talk about directly. And we get them on the list. And and one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why I I like doing this is that the next question isn't, what did I do? The next question is, what was the harm? What was the harm? Big difference. Big difference between what I did and what the harm was. I stole from my mother. I mean, my mother waitressed at night, trying to raise four kids on her own. My father never paid a dime in child support. You know? And I would, like a ninja, crawl on my belly into her bedroom. All I needed was a hood, you a know, black ski mask. you know. And I would steal her tips out of her purse. You know? That's what I did wrong. That's not how that harmed my mother. My mother couldn't trust her own son. My mother had to hide her jewelry in her purse when her son was around. My mother couldn't pay her bills because her son stole her money. That's the harm. I cheated on my wife. That's what I did wrong, but that's not how I harmed her. She may never trust another man in the rest of her life. She may take that, hurt, that harm into the next relationship, and that poor guy will suffer from what I did. There may have been kids involved. My kids, my oldest son, had to move from his house to an apartment because I couldn't stay sober, and I couldn't control my anger. My oldest son had me as I had custody of my older son for two years, but I couldn't stay stopped, and I lost custody of my son to my ex-wife. He got bounced around wrong versus the harm. Big difference. So we get clear on what was the actual harm. What am I actually making restitution for? I'm not going to go there, hey, I'm sorry, Mom, I stole your money. She don't even want the money. She does not want the money. I never even realized how deep the harm went. I mean, my mother, how do you pay back sleepless nights? My mother couldn't sleep. My mother didn't know I was alive or dead most nights. My mother got a good night's sleep when I was arrested. <laughs> you know, leave him in there. You let me get a couple nights sleep, you know. <laughs> I know where he is. He's safe. And then what do we, anybody, who's been to jail, right? You, you, or you call your parents and tell them how bad it is in there, right? They're attacking me. They're beating, it's clean as a whistle in there, you know. There's this, one of the, i, I the, uh, Conti and those places are uh, beautiful places. They're spotless. You know, nothing going on there. My, my, my parents call me and say, He's in there. I need to get him out. I say, no, leave him in there. It's a country club. <laughs> Relax. Get some light, good night's sleep. He's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Don't listen to that bullshit. You know, there's nothing going on in there. There are cops everywhere. <laughs> you know, I've been there. <laughs> I was uh, about three years ago, I almost lost my mom. My mom's a two-time cancer survivor. And uh, we were actually uh, at one point uh, in Imperial Point Hospital. I brought a priest in to give her last rites. And, And this is where we have no clue sometimes until we are willing to sit with them. And uh, and my mom, on her deathbed, I mean, we think we're going to lose her. Looks at me and says to me, "Why don't you get along with your sister?" Like this is the last thing that's on her mind in her life that she wants her children to get. My sister and I are like oil and water. You know, I mean, I don't. I love my sister, but I keep her at arm's length. You know, most of the time. I kept her at arm's length. Let me say that. You know, I made amends to my sister that night. I just never real, we just don't realize, you know, the things that are that are bothering them, that the harm that we've done in those areas. You know, the fact that her children couldn't get along, she was consumed by it. You know, I mean, that was her her dying wish that you get along with your sister. You know, who knew? You know? But that's the kind of stuff that that we just don't. You can't. See it on, on it's, you know, has nothing to do with what I did wrong, but the harm, and, and we and we get clear. By the way, I'll, let me get, finish this thing, this thought. We get clear on the harm, and then we make a plan for the amends. What's the plan for the amends? You know, how am I going to repair the damage done? And we write out a plan, and, and usually, uh, we rehearse that plan. I don't. I usually tell my guys, call me before you make any amends, you know, uh, and we'll and we'll talk it over and see and make sure that you have an escape plan for one, because it may go wrong. It might go wrong. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And, and then we check it as we get them done. Because when we move into 10, the 10th step is going to say that we commence this way of living as we continue to clean up the past. You know, we don't sit on 9 and wait until we're done with 9 before we move into the design for living. I have them do 2, and then we move into steps 10 and 11 and 12. You know, We move right into the, the spot check inventory, the nightly inventories, the prayer and meditation, and now who are you going to help? What meeting are you going to chair? Where are you going to make coffee? That kind of stuff, right? And we check it off. Is this something I can do now? Is this something I do later? Is this something I can't do? We don't use the word won't. Remember, somebody else is in charge. God will put them in front of you if, it, if it's supposed to happen. We never, we can't do it right now. And as they're addressed, we check them off. And I continually go back and ask my guys, how are you doing with that nine-step list? Where are you with that nine-step list? You know? And some of them, you know, you may not be able to do. I mean, this, the, the ninth step is very specific as to, it's one of the few steps really that tells you exactly what to do. You know? We're going to make direct amends. Wherever, you know, what kind of amends are you going to make? We're going to make direct amends, face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball. When are we going to do that? Wherever possible. <laughs> you know? Wherever that's possible, we're going to do that. But when aren't we going to do that? Well, when it would hurt other people. You know, when it would harm other people, we're not going to do that so I'm on my way over here and I get a call from a, a I don't sponsor the guy but but we uh, I might as well <laughs> co-sponsor him anyway and uh, and he asked a good question and they were doing the fourth step in the workshop uh, that we do last week and somebody asked if they could put their name on their resentment sheet you know and I don't have a right or wrong on this, by the way. Uh, I don't think there's a right or wrong. And I said, yeah, why not? Why not? I regret a lot of the things I do. You know, I resented a lot of the things I do. Now, the question is, do we put the, our name on the harms list? Right? Now, that's a different question, right? The book is pretty specific. And I'm not going to say what's right or wrong. If you're, whatever your sponsor tells you to do, that's probably what you should do, you know? But... Uh, the book is clear. We're going to be hard on ourselves, easy on others, right? It tells us that we should be willing to go to jail if necessary, right? If, if that, that's what it takes to remove this cloud over our head to, to, to free us, I mean, how free do you want to be, right? If, you, if, we, if it takes going to jail to get free, and we ought to be willing to do that. This eighth step is about willingness, right? This is about being true to the list. The eighth step talks about it says the word "all" twice, right? Willing to make amends to them all. made a list of all the people that we've harmed and be willing to make amends to them all. Does't mean we're going to, but we need to be willing to. We need to be true to the list. We need to be honest to the list. I always tell my guy, don't even think about step nine when you're doing step eight. Don't even think about it. Because there's some of them are on we're not gonna do. We're not gonna open up wounds. We're not gonna create more harm. The ninth step is clear on that. But I I think the book is pretty clear that I am not another. <laughs> you know, except when we harm others, I'm not another. Yeah. You know? It's it's about being hard on me. But but here's what what I think I know. And and my friend Ben calls it this healing circuit, right? That when I forgive you, God forgives me. And as I go through these amends and I forgive anybody that's legitimately harmed me, I gain forgiveness. And I believe that's this healing circuit, that the forgiveness through you goes up to God and comes back to me. And I'm able to accept it. It was in me forgiving my father that I was able to forgive myself for my behavior. Because I was looking at my father and saying, how did he end up like he is? And then you look at his life and you see him with two alcoholic parents, violent alcoholic parents, who raised three boys and two girls and would wake them up in the middle of the night while they were drunk and use them for entertainment purposes. He had no shot at a healthy relationship. And I began to understand that neither did I. <laughs> you know, He had no idea how to raise children. He had no idea to have a relationship with a woman. You know? No clue. His role models were alcoholics, violent alcoholics. My role models were violent alcoholics. You know? My father was, a, was a, a liar and a cheat. Let's just call it what it is. You know? A deadbeat dad. You know? But I was, once I was able to forgive him, I was able to forgive me and see where my past might help somebody else, as it says in the family afterward, right? Our deep, dark past unlocks the door for others, right? And helps them find, get into the light, you know? So I, so I, don't, I don't necessarily agree that we belong on the a's, but who cares, you know? I mean, what harm could it do? I thought it was a good question. So I want, to tell, I want to tell a story. Uh, I love telling a couple of stories in the, in the eighth and ninth step, and then we'll, we'll maybe get serious about the ninth step. And, and one of them is about a guy named Frank Buckman, right? And, and Frank Buckman is this Lutheran minister who starts a hospice for young men, wealthy guy, his parents are wealthy, and he's living off his parents' money. And he starts this hospice uh, for young men. And he wants it to be free. He wants it to be, It's an altruistic movement by him. He wants it to be free, and he takes on some partners. And his partners take control of the company, and, and it becomes a for-profit corporation. Right? And he is freaking pissed. You know, he is upset, resentful, angry man. Can't get over it, can't let it go, and leaves the hospice. You know, in anger, in, with a resentment, just leaves it, lets them take it. And he wanders around for a little while and he and he hears about this uh Baptist minister who's who's uh doing a talk in Cambria, uh England, a guy named H. B. Meyer, and he decides to go listen to H. B. Meyer, right, on his on his parents' dime again. Right? And he travels to England to this Keswick convention and uh and he's at the convention and he sees all these people going into this room, right? And, and they're wandering in his room, and he's wondering what the hell everybody's going in there for, what kind of social event is going on. And he goes in there, and there's this woman named Jesse Penn Lewis doing a talk in there. And Jesse Penn Lewis does a talk on forgiveness and how we get free for forgiveness. And she talks about this healing circuit, right, that if you want to be free, you have to forgive him. And, and Frank Buckman has a spiritual experience. He has an awakening in this convention listening to her talk. And the theme of her talk was forgive everybody everything. Forgive everybody everything. If you want to be free, forgive everybody everything. Now the question is, how free do you want to be, right? So why is that even relevant, right? Well, it ends up becoming, he starts first century Christian fellowship which changes names a few times, but it becomes nicknamed the Oxford groups because of the Oxford group. Oxford students are all traveling around on the same train, and, and we call it the Oxford Groups. It was really the first century Christian fellowship. Later, it was the moral rearmament movement and initiatives for change, I think it was. But, uh, but we know it as the Oxford Groups. And why is that even relevant? Well, it was a guy named Roland Hazard, right? wealthy, wealthy, wealthy businessman in America. Right? tries Can't stay sober. His father gives control of this huge corporation to his younger brother, who's eight years younger than him, because he can't stay sober. And he's pissed about it. And He's doing everything he can to stop drinking. And he's, he's he's enlisted the best medical and psychological minds in the country and decides to go and find the father of psychology, right? Sigmund Freud, right? The best in the world. And probably lucky for us, Sigmund Freud's not available, right? He's probably off doing cocaine somewhere, you know, uh-huh. Dream therapy, sometimes, and that's probably true. He probably was, you know. Uh, and he ends up with uh, Carl Jung. Right? Almost drew a blank there. some timers, right? Carl Jung worked with uh, Sigmund Freud. Carl Jung and Adler worked with Sigmund Freud, uh, two of his doctors, two of his students. And and Carl Jung probably was number two in, in Europe, right? Our lives held in the balance. Adler and Freud thought that all answers were of the mind, right? If you could just unlock these inner springs of your mind, uh, you could recover, right? And Sigmund, uh, Carl Jung has a sign over his desk God is present, invoked or not. Invoked or not, Carl Jung's a believer. Right? So our book says that uh, Roland spent a year with him. That's probably not true probably inaccurate. He probably spent six months or so, but whatever it was, he spent a considerable amount of time over there with Carl Jung. And we read in our book in chapter two at the end of the two, but he left Carl Jung. And what's he say? I have such knowledge of the inner workings of my mind now that it would be unthinkable for me to pick up a drink. Unthinkable. And he stops in Paris before he gets on the ship to come back to the States to see a friend, and his friend offers him a drink and he celebrates his recovery right, and has a drink and gets drunk and ends up back to Carl Jung. And I love what Carl Jung says, right? He says, he, "What? Why can't I say something? Carl Jung says, I misdiagnosed you. I thought you were crazy. You know, I thought you had mental problems. It's way worse. You're an alcoholic. <laughs> That's what he says, <laughs> paraphrasing. Yeah. It's way worse than that. And what's he say? I've never been successful with someone like you, with an alcoholic of your type. Never been successful. And he's like, first step, right? Doors clang, I'm done, I'm doomed. Any exceptions, Doc? Yeah. Here and there, once in a while, I see what people, some people have these so-called spiritual experiences. Right? Ideas, attitudes, and emotions that were once the guiding force of these men and women are replaced by a whole new set of conceptions. A whole new set of conceptions. They change the way they think, change the way they feel, changes their actions. Spiritual experience, right? Personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. He says, cool. Back to the church. I'll go to church. I'll start going to church regularly. My father and mother are both pastors and deacons at the church. And Carl Jung says, that's not enough for you. And and he's puzzled. And he says, well, why? what do you mean it's not enough how do you know that he says because you're here right because if that was enough you would you would be there so i'm talking to you believers for a second that are sitting here saying well i should just go back to church or, then why are you here what's bill say and we agnostics if a better code of morals or a better philosophy on life were sufficient most of us wouldn't be here most of us would just be in church and by the way if that works for you hats off to you. You know, I tried it. They don't get me. They don't get me. I was up at the altar when I, I I was in a Catholic church and I, I was a you know when I, I'm either in or out, you know what I mean? I'm like all in or all out, right? So I'm I'm uh I'm either I'm usher, Eucharistic minister, you know, I'm whatever, I'll be everything. CCD, you know, I'm into all of it, right? So I'm up on the altar, and, and they decide to start drinking the wine up on the altar. Right? And they're passing this wine, this chalice of this wine, and it was something new. And I, can, and I hold it like dynamite, you know. And I pass it to the person next to me, and she hands it back to me. He says, that's the blood of Christ. I said, that's a freaking glass of wine. I <laughs> said, I can't drink that, you know. And, and I don't know where everybody else is with that, but I'm not touching it, you know. <laughs> and they didn't like it. They didn't like it. They didn't, maybe you don't belong here. So maybe I don't you know you don't understand but anyways he tells him you need more than church you need more than church and he decides to seek out the largest biggest best Christian movement of the time called the Oxford groups and he hooks up with Frank Buckman and then he hooks up with Sam Shoemaker in the United States and starts to work at the Calvary Mission in New York City carrying the message of Christianity and helping other alcoholics you know Why is that even relevant? Well, because Ebby Thatcher, this lawyer from Albany, New York, can't stay sober. And his brother's running for the mayor. Uh, His brother's the mayor of Albany. He's running for the governorship. And he tells Ebby, you need to get out of town or you're going to blow this election for me. We don't need the town drunk around here. And he sends Ebby up to Manchester, Vermont, to the summer home and tells him, just spend some time up there until the election's over. And Ebby goes up there. He says, paint the house or something. Do whatever. Just do. Just get out of town. And, and has anybody ever been up there? Never gone up there? It's a pretty cool place. We went to East Dorset uh, to where uh, the Wilson House is, where Bill was born behind a bar there, ironically. Uh, but grew up next door. When his parents divorced, he was really young. He was probably nine years old when his parents divorced. And he ended up being raised by his grandparents so Griffiths, in the Griffiths house next door. It's really a cool experience. But Manchester is like this rich area, ski resort area, right up the road, about three or four miles up the road. And all these high-end shops and all these big-ass uh, Victorian homes. In and, Ebby's and house, there's Main Street Manchester where all these high-end shops are. And then there's a house and then Ebby's house. And Ebby's painting the house, and pigeons start crapping on the house. And then Ebby starts shooting the pigeons off the house with a shotgun and gets arrested. Right? It's not the first time, it's the third time he's arrested. Each time he's gone up there, and this, the three, two summers before, he got arrested for driving a car through somebody's house and he got arrested for public darkness. This is his third strike. He's going to jail. Ebby might have been the first ever court-ordered alcoholic. Judge Graves is the judge in charge. Sieber Graves and Shep Cornell. Sieber Graves attorney, Judge Graves' son. And Shep Cornell, a stockbroker from New York, find out Ebby's in jail. And they go to get Ebby out of jail and ask the judge to release Ebby to the Oxford groups in lieu of jail. And Ebby agrees... And they had they had met with Ebby before and and got Ebby to agree. But Ebby agrees and the judge agrees. But the judge won't release him to his son, or Shep, because he's afraid he's going to get his son drunk on the way to the to the Oxford Group. But he'll release him to Roland Hazard because he trusts Roland Hazard and trusts that Roland will get him to the to the mission. And Ebby ends up at the Calvary Mission in New York City, right? With Roland and and. Uh, and that's where he, in meditation, starts asking about Bill Wilson. And Eby Thatcher brings the solution to Bill Wilson that he found in the Oxford groups. How Abby, what Ebbie found in the Oxford groups was our pro, was our solution, which becomes the spiritual experience, and the program of action, the tenets to bring about that spiritual experience. And that's the piece of the puzzle that Bill Wilson was missing when he brings him to, when he inquires on Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson knew what the problem was. Bill Wilson had been in detox four times. But what he was missing was the solution. He knew about the obsession of the mind, the allergy of the body. But he was missing those two pieces. What's the solution? And how do I bring about that solution? And Abby brings those pieces of hunger. So, you know, those slender threads I always like to talk about, the difference between us being here and us not being here, AA being here or AA not being here, all started with, you might say that the the foundation of this whole program is forgive everybody everything. Mm
5: -hmm.
4: Forgive everybody everything. And that's really where the ninth step starts. I'm going to get more into the ninth step uh, next week. I know uh, there's a big game on tonight that uh, some Patriot fans want to watch. I'm a Steeler fan myself. We can both say six, right? Six. Six rings, right? All right, guys. Thanks for letting me be here tonight. We'll do more on nine next week. Thanks.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, can we thank Pat one more time, please? Secretary, who has some lovely announcements for us.
2: Hi, my name is James, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. In keeping with the seven tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting and declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. I've asked Gloria to come and read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in the group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what exactly it means to be recovered alcoholics. Let's welcome up Gloria.
6: Hello, family. My name is Gloria. I'm recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered but not cured. That that presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of alcoholics centers in his mind rather than in his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered.
2: Thank you, Gloria. 1940s style big book sponsorship from forward to the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe and experienced is that God has not changed over time and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistic above suggests a 75 plus percent success rate. Can I ask uh, for a show of hands of our covered alcoholics out there? Awesome. Is there anyone that needs a sponsor? Nope. Okay. Uh, we have a couple announcements. Just a reminder, Broward County, intergroup information's up there, office hours, helpline. You can get your medallions, big books, other AA paraphernalia. Um, and they have new hours on Saturdays. I always forget, 10 to 2, 10 to 2. Uh, there's volunteer opportunities. You can ask Mike Chase. Uh, do we have any BCIC uh, representatives here tonight? Nope. Okay. They meet at the 12-step house of the second Saturday. Uh, they go into jails, institutions, and other places we can't get out of. And uh, please join us Monday nights for the Big Book Study Meeting, where the Big Book comes alive. Fellowships at 6.30, and the Big Book Study starts at 7.15. We have CDs, mugs, large print Big Books, Little Red Book, and a Big Book Dictionaries for sale in the back. And we meet here every Thursday starting at 7.15. See so right. you next week. Thank
1: you, James. Um, We have tonight's session and all the past speakers' podcasts online for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. Once again, I'd like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study. And those who wish to thank Pat, uh, please line up down the center here. uh, And I'd like us to close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, all monday night or next thir- thursday godspeed hey, hey,
7: hey. Ooh, heart is heavy soul is thirsty body's aching i am desperately in need of restoration
8: When you're laughing When you're laughing Yes, yeah, the sun Girl, Shining through Rain. So stop
5: your sign,
8: baby, and be happy.
9: Yeah. It's a
10: In my life, and my thumbs are green now, growing vines, they twist and turn each way, flowers blooming all the time. Chase.